maybe the books that don't do well, we have some sort of special connection or belief in them, or it's like this book that we wrote from our heart or whatever. And a lot of times those books are the ones that don't necessarily resonate as much because they were written for the person rather than the public. Hello, and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. And me, Ellie Betts. And Millie the Westie, who's currently sitting on my lap. Being a very good dog. For now. Each week, we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve your writing goals. This week, we're talking to Nicholas Eric about book marketing. Our interviewee this week is Nicholas Eric. He's a sci-fi and fantasy novelist who has written over 20 books. For fellow indie authors, he writes comprehensive guides on how to sell more books, build your fan base, and be more productive. I love it with his guides. He starts off with the basic stuff and then goes super advanced and in-depth with it all. That's the best way to learn, I think. You need to start off with the basics and the building blocks and then you can build on that and you're better equipped to do so. And also there are different ways to do those foundational stages sometimes, so it's nice to get the different perspective. Now, I will warn you in advance, this is one of our longest interviews but it is so packed full of great info regardless of whether you're just starting out or you're further along in your career so for our lovely writers who are listening make sure you've got a drink and probably a notebook uh, and we can uh, get started yes if you find this episode and our others valuable you can support the writer's mindset over on patreon there, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus content, and our undying gratitude for supporting all the work that goes into creating these episodes for you. And you can become a podcast patron for as little as £1 a month. That's $1.50. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. How's your writing been going this week then? Writing has been surprisingly good this week. So... Our writers will hopefully remember me um, talking about the new schedule that I have in place for the two projects I've got going on at the moment. And in actual fact, it's been even more successful than I imagined. Um, I'm ahead of schedule, which is bizarre and amazing <laughs> at the same time and kind of unexpected, particularly compared, like obviously one of those projects is my dissertation. Um, for my master's, when I did my dissertation for my undergrad, I was literally like the personification of last minute. Um, so it feels it feels like I've grown. I've come a long way. It was quite a few years ago, obviously. But I'm happy to be ahead of schedule and happy to be managing my schedule well, let alone anything else. So yeah, and I'm back into reading. I think people go back and forth on reading and I'm in a reading phase as well at the moment. So all is well, all is well. What about you? What have you been up to? I definitely feel better than I did last week. I've done a few small writing sessions. Like I had an idea of how to open the fifth After Life Calls book the other day. So I was like typing that away on my phone at like 11 o'clock at night. And then I realized that I've only published one book but one at the beta readers and drafted the third one. So I'm quite far ahead on that series. 
which is nice. But the reason I decided to do a bit more on that was because, like I say, I was a bit emotionally drained from doing Hollywood Heartbreak and Necromancer Secret. And book five is going to lean more into the comedy of the series and be a bit more of a piss take. And so I've got a plan for that. I've got my post-its here and cover that because there's a spoiler at the top. <laughs> Don't you? For anyone who's watching the YouTube video, I hope they didn't just see that spoiler. To be fair, actually... The paperclip covers the name that the scene <laughs> refers to very well. And also, because I'm lazy, I only used initials anyway. So it might not mean anything to people, I hope. Anyway, I did that. And I also started working on an entirely new project, which was originally a standalone book I started when I was 17. The characters are the same. The setting of the Gold Coast in Australia is the same. And everything else pretty much is different. And I was going to use that as kind of my side project and write that in the mornings. And I thought, oh, this is going to be too heavy because the main character is going through grief in the story and it's about her overcoming that and the romance as well. And actually, I think it will be cathartic and helpful rather than draining. There's potentially only really one or two scenes that are going to be draining. So I can always skip those because I don't write chronologically anyway. <laughs> and then I had my second COVID jab yesterday. Not yesterday, the day before. Woohoo! Welcome to the double jab club. Thank you. It... I did get side effects a little bit. I was very, very tired. So I just spent the day binge watching telly and then did a couple of planning sessions yesterday in between. So I still felt productive, even though I couldn't concentrate to like read or write. I was kind of creative enough to be able to still do something productive. And it means then that when I do work on those books, I can kind of hit the ground running, you know. Sounds good. Sounds good. And you seem to have recovered well. So that's the main thing. Yeah, I have my energy back again. I'm still a little bit tired, but that's because I'm in a warm room and I haven't drunk as much as I should have done today. And because you're Christina. There's that as well, yeah. <laughs> Shall we uh, dive right into Nick's interview? Yes, let's go. With me today is Nicholas Eric, a sci-fi and fantasy novelist who's written over 20 books and he shares amazing advice for indie authors. So for anyone who hasn't heard of you before, can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey? Sure. I'm an author. I've written about 20 books at this point. I'm a USA Today bestselling author. And what the main part of my business is at this point is helping other authors with ads, with marketing. So I've worked one-on-one -on -one with probably about 20 plus authors managing their ads over the past few years and I also have a weekly newsletter and some courses and things like that. So I have a good idea of what works across multiple different genres rather than just my own in fantasy and sci-fi. So I have a pretty broad view of what's effective, what's not, and what tends to be more universal principles as opposed to things that just work in a specific subgenre or niche. Yeah. So in your book, the ultimate guide to book marketing, you say that there's this kind of indie trifecta of success that mm -hmm. includes productivity, marketing, and craft. Why do you say this is so important for indies to get right? Okay. So the trifecta is productivity, which is just going to be, you have to show up to get better at anything and to get results. So if that's not happening, then nothing else really matters. So that's going to be kind of the base of the pyramid. That's how I set it up. And then in the middle is craft, 
you need to write books of a certain caliber and level to compete in the marketplace because readers have a lot of options. So if you're not hitting certain levels in terms of your craft, then you need to shore that up, whether that's a structural problem or characters or plot. There are few major components to your books that are critical to get right and to get to a professional level. And then the marketing is really an activator for books that are already of a professional caliber. So you can certainly sell books that don't meet those standards, but it's hard to build a career based on them. And what you're trying to do is get work out there that people enjoy and get in front of more people. So the main task at that point is just getting it in as many people's hands as possible and try to do so profitably. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You also talk a lot about the 80, 20 rule. So why do you recommend authors follow it? And what is it for anyone who hasn't heard of it? Sure. The 20 or the 80, 20 rule is a, basically a power law. So it's a mathematical law that was first discovered by an Italian economist named Vilfredo Pareto back around the late 19, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And what he found was that 20% of the people in Italy owned, I believe, 80% of the land. That's where he first kind of identified that. And it turns out that it's applicable to a wide range of disciplines and the numbers kind of shift around. Maybe it's 1% generates 99% of the results or something like that. But the main idea is that a certain very small percentage of what you do generates an outsized amount of the results. And why that's so critical here is that we all have limited time. We all have limited resources. Even as you become more successful as an author, you may be thinking, hey, there's going to be this moment in time where I have all these hours, maybe you're part-time now and you want to go full-time, you still need to ration how you're spending your energy and how you're spending those hours because you can burn through them really quickly. Same thing with money. There's no amount in your bank account that will allow you to just waste that frivolously. So you want to really work hard to get to that 20%. And it's not a license to be lazy. What it more is about is focusing on the things that drive the majority of your results and then doubling down. So you can spend a lot of time and effort doing all this other stuff that doesn't matter and get nowhere. Whereas if you're really focused on the things that move the needle, then you can get a lot more for the same amount of resources. And in theory, if you are writing part-time, then potentially it can get you towards doing it full-time much faster as well if you're better at managing your time. Yeah, exactly. So it works really any place in your career. If you have very limited time, then obviously making the most of that is absolutely critical. It is, yeah. It's something I've always had to juggle with my chronic health issues is, okay, how much time and energy do I have? Because it's not just time, it is energy. I have a limited capacity to that. And if I push myself too far, it means then I can do nothing and I'm a shriveled heap on the floor, in which case it pushes me further back rather than me being clever with how I manage my time and therefore getting more done and achieving these results much faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think 
from my own experience, um, a good kind of benchmark because I have control over my entire day and really it's up to me what I'm going to do on a certain day. And in theory, that means that my day is wide open and unlimited. But if I just kind of let that go and focus it across a dozen different things or two dozen different things, I don't make any progress whatsoever. So it definitely, from the outside, I think people would say my day, like in the amount of time that I have would be ideal, but it's still not unlimited. So I'm grateful that I can do that certainly, but it's definitely something that I have to apply and really be conscious of doing so. Cause you can lie to yourself too. You can be like, well, I have 12 hours or whatever. I have 14 hours here. And then all of a sudden you get to the end of the day and you're like, wait, what exactly did I do today? Like we all have those kind of days. You're like, I don't know exactly what happened here, but I feel like no progress was made. Yeah, I found writing down what I have to do each day and ticking it off really makes sure that I am staying focused rather than, okay, what do I do? And I kind of pick something out of thin air and then it's not actually something that's got me towards my goals. Having that list to refer back to every day really stops me from, you know, flailing about and panicking and having those days where I'm like, okay, I did nothing today, but it feels like I did everything. Yeah, yeah, writing things down and lists and things like that are really helpful for that and like staying on point. Yeah, I'm the kind of person who will forget things very easily if I don't write them down. So I write them down so that there's more space in my head. So we're talking about book marketing today. And so because that's one of the things that really came up in our Facebook group when I said to people I was talking to you. So one of the questions that I want to put to you is what type of book marketing do you feel is the most profitable, whether that is like paid advertising or free advertising? I'd say the number one thing is your email newsletter. You want to be building that over time. So any marketing you do really has an eye toward building your fan base. And the best way to communicate with your fans is through your email newsletter. It's something that you own. So you can't have that taken away from you. It's something that will be around in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and it will largely be the same. There will be technical differences, but I would say that those have been minor in the evolution of email. It's pretty similar sending an email in 1995 to 2021. And I would assume that's going to be pretty similar in 2030, 2040. Every service that you sign up for, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or anything else requires that you have an email that you put in so that they can contact you. So those services are not a replacement for email. Sometimes you hear about this latest social media platform or whatever is going to kill email. That's never happened because they all require email as that hub. So I would say whatever you're doing, really think how you can build that list. And certainly you can use things like Facebook groups, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, whatever social stuff you're using. TikTok is really exploding now, but think how you can capture that audience long-term and engage with them long-term where you control the interaction because all those algorithms change right now. TikTok is really popular and I think people build what they think are businesses on top of that, but then they're really just building them on top of an algorithm and a tactic. And that's not a long-term business. So the goal isn't to be successful in the next three months or six months. If you are successful and do that, that's great, but it's really about 
if you want to be a full-time author or part-time author and write, presumably you want to do so for five years, 10 years, 30 years, 40 years. So email is the longest term bet there. And you want to use those other platforms and any marketing that you do to hopefully build that. So that would be my number one thing to focus on marketing wise. Um, and as for paid versus free advertising, paid ads give you scale that you can't necessarily get with most free advertising options. You can spend a lot of money on something like Amazon ads where you're spending $5 a day, or you can spend $500 a day, $750 a day, $1,000 a day. And that just gives you the opportunity to reach a lot more people than most free options, but it's not necessarily going to be a good fit for a lot of people because the ads require tracking, they require analysis, they require certain skills that no one has at the beginning. You can develop them, but a lot of people get tripped up with the mindset of the paid ads where it's very difficult for them to scale them to that degree. And it, it can be very uncomfortable to push beyond certain money blocks and certain technical blocks. And I think that those are surmountable, but you also have to know yourself where some people just aren't comfortable with spending a ton of money there or much at all, or don't want to do that. So there are alternatives and it's not necessarily the best option for everyone. And certainly not a great option if you're just starting out and don't have a ton of money to spend. You don't want to be racking up these huge advertising bills on these platforms because at the beginning, it's like tuition where you're paying for the ads, but you're probably not getting a ton in return sales-wise because you need to learn what works and what doesn't. And there's no shortcutting that process. Yeah, it can take a while to learn how to juggle it, particularly with there being so many different places you can advertise them or kind of having their own different quirks. One of our listeners, Jeff, asked what marketing he can achieve with minimal budget. So would you say definitely go for a mailing list? Yeah, I would first set up a mailing list and then I would write a short story or novella and then join things like book funnel and story origin promotions. You can also join giveaways. Some companies host some book sweeps is one of them. There are giveaways that are hosted in various Facebook groups and stuff like that as well that are low cost or free that you can join in other cross promotions and you can build your list really inexpensively that way i believe book funnel subscription is starts at five or ten dollars i think story origin starts at around ten dollars so you can use that to start building a fan base and i think that the best low-cost marketing strategy there is is to find a kindle unlimited niche that is underserved, which means that it's popular and people are reading voraciously in it, but there's not this huge influx of books in it yet. Something like mystery or what I write, urban fantasy, it's pretty well established at this point. There are a lot of traditionally published books. There's a lot of indie books that are quite popular. So that's not necessarily a great fit to fight it out with everyone who's been writing for five or 10 years, but there are certain books in Kindle Unlimited that can gain traction because there's not a ton of competition there. So you can look through the charts and kind of look through Facebook groups and stuff like that to find those. And you can write those 
publish them. If you can publish them relatively quickly, then even better. And that's a way that you can jumpstart things. I don't know that that's necessarily a long-term strategy in that anything where there's cheap visibility or essentially free visibility is going to attract other authors. So you've seen this with Lit RPG and Reverse Harem and then the Paranormal Romance Academy books and stuff like that. So it's not necessarily a long-term strategy where you can bank on spending no money forever, but you can gain a foothold and start building your fan base and get some money in the bank. And then you can use that as a springboard to a different genre that's larger, or you can use it to spend some money on ads as things get more competitive and more popular. So that would be an approach there. But I think, you know, if you are writing in a more popular competitive subgenre that has been around for a while, just building your mailing list in that fashion is a good start. And the other thing I would do is submit to BookBub. So BookBub is expensive on the surface of things, but it's pretty much the only surf service that is almost guaranteed. There is no guarantees in this business, but almost guaranteed to at least break even or usually make your money back, especially if you have some books in the series to sell through to besides the one that's being discounted. So I would submit to BookBub. It's the cheapest form of advertising that you're going to find based on the price point, you know, on a cost per download or cost per sale basis. It's much cheaper than basically any other option for discounted books, whether that's other promo sites or whether that's something like Facebook, Amazon ads, something like that. So to submit to BookBub, generally a book has to be discounted, doesn't it? Yeah, you would want to run it at 99 cents or free. What would you say to someone who feels regular promos, as you recommend in your book, devalues their writing? I think this is a branding question, which is pretty advanced. So I think usually when someone's asking this, they're at the start of their career and they, they're not necessarily thinking about the actual ramifications of that. So if you have like a really ultra premium brand, which most authors don't, I would say maybe there's a handful of indie authors that do, then you wouldn't want to do any discounting. But if you have even a premium brand, then you can use occasional discounts without any issue. I would say that most authors are going to be in that premium brand segment or somewhere. I don't know what the official name for it would be, but like kind of like the middle area where they're not a discount kind of bargain basement brand where they're just relying on 99 cent books and everything in their catalog is 99 cents. But most authors have a mixture of free books and full price books. If you're wide, you might have a perma free book one, or, you know, you, you have a 99 cent series starter or one of your books is 99 cents, or you occasionally run free promos or discounted promos. So I don't think it devalues things online. You have to remember that people have a really short memory and attention span. They're not super keyed into your overall pricing structure. I know it sometimes seems that way because occasionally you'll get very vocal people emailing you about, Hey, this book has been discounted and I just bought it or something, but that's really going to be an exception to the rule. Most people aren't going to be all that focused on your pricing. So I wouldn't be concerned about discounting. I would be more concerned about 
no one buying your books and no one ever finding out who you are because that's a much larger risk. Yeah, I agree. I uh, made my first ever book, which I published in 2016, perma-free in 2019, and that basically started my career. Like, it does make a difference. I had four books out in the series by then, it was, it was a five-book series, and it made a massive difference making that book free because people, and I was running Facebook ads to it as well, and it was like, it's kind of a beach read, so it, and it was June, July, so it was the perfect time to be running Facebook ads to something like that. And people were just chilling by the pool and binge reading it. It was, you know, it, it was quite lucky in a way. But also I had to take that risk on my book as well so that readers would take that risk on my book. Yeah, yeah. And once you have a few books in the series, Permafree is a good strategy for sure. You obviously are banking on that sell-through. So if you have one book, then Permafree doesn't make a lot of sense. But it can be really effective. These days, you probably do have to run ads as you did to get sustained visibility, but it can also still be a relatively low cost strategy, getting back to the previous question that you can use if your budget is more limited, because if the book is good and delivers on the promise and you have some books in the series, then you can drive visibility to them through that free book relatively cheaply. And get people into the series that way. So it's definitely effective. What about then if someone's just published their first book, what would you say is the best way for them to promote that? I'd say first mailing list and second, take a moment to celebrate that you finished it. I think <laughs> that that's a milestone where you really irrevocably prove to yourself that, Hey, I can finish this. There's always this question beforehand for most people. So I, I, for some reason, didn't have this question in my mind. It was always kind of like, I'm going to write this and it's going to be finished. And it was never a doubt. But I think there's a lot of that self-doubt before the book is actually real and finished. And once you hit that publish button and it's done, then you know that you can do it again and again. And then the next thing I would do is start the next book and write that. The faster you get that out, the better you're going to be craft-wise. And the money is in the backlist. So the example I'd use is people think that they're going to make all this money from the one book. Let's say best case scenario, you're going to make a million dollars from your first book. Sounds great. After taxes, you're at 500,000 for the year, you know, over 10 years, that's 50 grand a year. So you still have to write the next book, regardless of whether the first one smashes it out of the park. And let's be honest, that's not going to happen. And if it does happen to you, send me your lottery ticket numbers because I <laughs> like those as well. But that's not really a strategy or that's more of a hope. And I think if that can get you over the finish line where you're really hoping that that first book is going to be this mega success, then by all means, you know, use that to your advantage. But once you press publish, right, don't get discouraged by the book not selling. A lot of times it's not going to sell super well. It can, but you don't have the marketing tools and skills in place maybe to sell it to the best of your ability or the best of its potential at that point. So just write the next one and you learn more as you go on and you can apply that later also, the book itself may not be 
at the level where it needs to be to actually compete in the marketplace. Some people, their first books are great and they're of that professional level. And then some people, it takes time. Certainly the first couple books that I wrote, it's not something that was going to be super commercially successful for that reason, but that's okay. You get better and you improve over time, but you can only improve both the marketing and the craft side if you keep publishing. So it's easy to just get locked in to that first book. Or if you have a couple books even, or three books, you get obsessed with figuring out how to market them and all this stuff. Just start building your mailing list. Do a couple things for the launch, you know, and experiment with different ad platforms or different free or low cost options, whatever, and keep moving. There's not much you can do with just one book a lot of the time. So just build that backlist. Yeah, the amount of people I speak to and they kind of want to write that one great book or one great series that has a very clear endpoint to the story. And it's like, but this is a business model. So if you want to make money doing that, that's not sustainable you know this isn't a SaaS product where it is ongoing and going and going there is a clear start and end when people finish reading you're not going to get paid again even if they read it again yeah yeah right you can only sell the book once so i don't know in other countries what this kind of is referred to as but in the u.s it's called like the great american novel where people want to write that kind of like canon book along the lines of mark twain or whatever or some sort of book that gets really popular and has staying power and sells all these copies. And that's a nice ideal, but it's not generally reality. In the indie realm, you're usually writing genre fiction that's going to appeal to a specific segment of the market. And that may be a very large segment of the market. You know, James Patterson writes genre fiction. Lee Child writes genre fiction that their books sell millions of copies, but it's just a different kind of mindset and approach. They're very commercially minded in the structure and the writing and how everything is branded. And that's not by mistake. That's all really thought through and it's obviously successful. That's, but that's going to be what most working authors, regardless of whether you're traditionally published or any published, that's usually what is going to happen. I think what happens is that the outliers are the type of authors that we all read in school, or if you go to college or university and get an English degree, then those are also going to be outliers. So we come to it with this mindset that we can write this one book or this handful of books over our career where you're writing four or five and they all just live on forever and keep getting purchased to, to perpetuity but that's not really the case you got to keep writing yeah i don't know about over there but certainly in the uk we tend to study the same books mm -hmm. like we're all still studying things from like the 50s and the 60s maybe the 70s so they were traditionally published in a world that was very very different when you could be harper lee or jd salinger and that one book would change your life and you could make millions off it and then just retire and hide like J.D. Salinger did for the rest of your life. But that's not the life of an indie author anymore. It's almost turned into a culture of personality and the more your readers feel like they have a connection with you, the bigger you can grow your brand. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you just have to keep writing. Like that's the, the bottom line. There's no avoiding that. And I think that that is really the main question that people have to answer 
when they want to be part-time or full-time author, is that something you want to do? You got to enjoy writing the actual books or get some sort of satisfaction out of it because what I see sometimes is people are trying to avoid that at all costs. They're trying to use all these marketing tactics and all this other stuff to avoid writing. And if that's what you're trying to do, then you really have to question whether this is what you're wanting to do with your life and how you want to spend your time, because that's how you're going to be spending a lot of your time by yourself writing the book. And that can be really satisfying if it's something that you want to do, but if it's not, then probably, you know, there are a hundred other things that you could be doing. Like you probably want to do one of those instead, because it's probably easier ways to make money. Just saying like, yeah, quite a few. <laughs> you know, I would say, but if you do want to make money in this business, then it's something that is possible. And I, I think that that's pretty powerful because even 15 years ago, that statement wouldn't necessarily be true because there were so many gatekeepers between you and the end goal. And there was just way more luck involved to navigate all that. But now it's really in your hands and you have control over all the decisions, which can be good and bad. You have to mm -hmm. learn a lot of different things. And also there's no one to look at other than the person in the mirror when something kind of goes awry, like you made the decisions, you have to live with them, but at least you have control over your own fate and destiny at this point, which is very powerful. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I chose to go indie because I wanted that control. I wanted it to be on me when something succeeded or failed. And I also, I'll be honest, I wanted more of the revenue. I didn't see why these people who weren't as invested in my characters or stories and hadn't spent a decade living with them floating around in their head should earn more money than me, because then it would mean that I would basically be earning less than minimum wage for something I worked my ass off on. That just seemed inconceivable to me. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can do that work, then you're going to net a lot more in almost all instances than if you go the traditionally published route. Um, there are exceptions and traditional publishers have certain access and reach that you can't get and replicate as an indie author. And that's certainly a viable option to go that route or as a hybrid where you're doing both traditional publishing and the indie stuff. But, you know, if you can learn things like the branding and the marketing and figure out how to produce a professional quality book on your own and things like that, then certainly there are a lot of benefits to the indie side of things because you have that control. Yeah. So then like if the cover doesn't quite match the book, it's a lot easier to change than if you're trying to go through a traditional publisher, because they're probably not going to give you much of a say, if any say at all. Yeah. They, they, they're probably not going to change that after the fact. And if they do, they're probably not going to consult you on it really much more than a cursory fashion uh but there's always downsides too like you can also get bogged down with the indie stuff where you keep changing your cover or you get obsessed with that or like it's hard to figure out also it's not a guarantee that the professional cover that you get is going to be an exact match for your genre so i went through all that you know it's it's a game of perseverance that started nine years ago at this point and you just keep getting a bit better and a bit better. And it seems like the people who are further along than you or at the top of the charts or whatever, that they're doing this 
set of things that is kind of inconceivable and impossible to put together on your own, but they didn't do that overnight. It's an iterative process where they're going through that and learning from release to release and promo to promo. And it's a series of occasional triumphs and a lot of mistakes and frustrating things where you really think something's going to work. I definitely had scenarios where I chose a cover and I was like, this is going to drive so much revenue and it's just, this is perfect. And then readers are like, nah, <laughs> you know, happens, it, happens. <laughs> it still happens. So mm -hmm. there's never a point where you figured everything out for sure. But, um, it is nice that we can keep progressing and we can learn from our mistakes and update something that if you learn something five years from now for a title that you wrote 10 years ago, you can go in and change it. So maybe you figure something out and then you have that for the next 20 years. If you figure out what cover to put on it, then you, then you have that. So it's very powerful. Yeah. I remember something I once got told in a job interview, actually, for my previous job when I was still full time. And one of the guys who was interviewing me was the CEO of a company. He'd had three companies at this point. And I said, like, I'd closed the online magazine that I'd been running because I didn't have the time and I didn't know what I was doing. And he laughed and he said, no one knows what they're doing. And for someone who earned a lot of money, was older than me, was, um, you know, running a successful business to say everyone is making it up as they go along. It was incredibly powerful for me to hear, particularly when I was still quite young at the start of my career. I'd only published like two books by this point. So it really kind of reassured me to know, okay, well, if this guy doesn't know what he's doing, it doesn't really matter if I don't, as long as I'm still making progress in some regard and I'm still moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Like trial and error is so important and that's the way everyone learns. And, you know, some people you hit that success earlier on, like you find what works earlier on. Sometimes it takes more time, but it's just really about staying in the game long-term and setting things up so that financially you can keep publishing and that there's no one launch or promo or marketing thing that makes or breaks you. That's a bad position to be in. That's where I see a lot of people get in trouble. And that can either be a financial investment or an emotional investment where the last series that I wrote was three years ago. And I was really expecting this to do super, super well. And it, it did okay. And in retrospect, I could have pushed it. And if I had just released the next book on time, then I would have been fine. But that didn't happen because I was freaking out about how it wasn't doing what I thought it was going to do. And it wasn't performing up to my entirely arbitrary expectations. And I see that happen a lot where people get really discouraged and they stop. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time trying to work through why that didn't do well and try to fix it and all that, which it's worthwhile trying to retrace your steps and analyze what's going wrong, but that can kind of devolve into rumination or just spending a lot of time throwing good money after bad and good time after bad. So, you know, it took me a while to just kind of let that go. And I mean, there was a three-year gap between that book and the book that I just wrote that came out. In the meantime, I was doing ads for clients and learned a lot of stuff and things like that. And um, working on the marketing side. So it wasn't like I just 
sat there, but certainly that experience of having those expectations, it was kind of like jarring. And the one thing that I've learned in that time frame is just to really let go of those because they're not usually an accurate reflection of what's going to happen, either good or bad. You know, you just don't know what you don't know. And there are things that in retrospect are obvious where I can say, yeah, given my fan base at that time and given what I knew about marketing and everything else, that there's just no way that this was going to be this level of success. Um, but in the moment, you don't know that. So it's better to just let go of a lot of that stuff. And you don't have control over what people are going to do anyway, how they're going to react to the book, how they're going to buy the book. And marketing is so much of a game of trial and error because human beings are really unpredictable and it's just hard to know what they're going to like, what they're not going to like. And it's another reason why you just got to keep writing. Uh, no success is permanent. No failure is fatal. Um, unless you kind of dwell on it, in which case you can get really sidetracked. And I think that's where people kind of give up. And that's unfortunate if it's really something that you want to do. It might not be unfortunate if you decide, I don't really like writing as much as I thought, or I don't really like the business aspect of it, then you can definitely quit. And that's a good decision if that's the case, but it's a bad decision if it's just based purely on expectations. I totally agree. Mench, tying back into the confidence stuff and giving up when it gets a little bit too challenging and stuff, marketing, as we've said, is a massive part of being an author. You can't really avoid it. But some authors are a little bit uncomfortable kind of putting themselves out there and maybe even putting their creative work out there. So what would you say to someone who's either afraid to put their work out there or feels like they're selling too much and is worried about being too in people's faces? Uh, do something that you're more comfortable with like that you can kind of negotiate with yourself or maybe you're not super stoked about it, but you're not, you know, really apprehensive or super nervous about. So I would start there and then you can kind of move along the chain, do things that correlate with your strengths. So the ads are a good fit for what I'm trying to accomplish. I want that scalability. I want this ability to reach as many people as possible and that's fine with the ads. Any failure really doesn't bother me. I don't see it as failure. It's just a testing process, but that can really throw people off where they start an ad and they're expecting it to be amazing. And then it inevitably, especially at the beginning, it's probably going to suck. And then they stop, you know, and they say, I've tested a bunch of stuff and I'll talk to them and they've tested two things. You know, this is really common. So, um, and part of that's just experience and knowing what, testing means and the scope of how much you actually have to test to become good and find things that are good. But some of it's mindset as well, where it's just not necessarily going to be a great fit for them. So you want to find those things where you can accept whatever challenges or discomfort lies ahead. And I would start with those. I think one thing with productivity is that there's always this recommendation be like, do the most uncomfortable thing possible. You know, that's the only way to grow. That's kind of, I mean, it's kind of bullshit, man. Like if I'm being honest, like, because it's, especially when you, you're not forced to do it by someone else, we're all here by ourselves. We don't have a boss forcing us to do it. It's really hard to do that. If you're just like terrified of doing something or super uncomfortable and that's never 
that's not to say never go out of your comfort zone or never do things that bring you some amount of discomfort because you do have to do those. That's just part of life. But immediately jumping into the deep end of the pool that's freezing cold and covered in ice and has all these polar bears in it, it's like, that's not a great strategy, right? And none of that may be real. Like the polar bears might not be real. The ice might not be real. It might all be in your head, but it is real in that moment. Like the fear is real and you have to acknowledge that. So it's easier to start a little bit further down the chain. And a lot of those things are things that are really powerful. It's not like, for example, posting videos on TikTok is worse of a strategy than running Facebook ads. Right now, running, like doing TikTok stuff might be better than doing Facebook ads. If you're good at the TikTok stuff, I'll say this, like the thought of doing a bunch of TikTok videos does not really thrill me in terms of the level of comfort that I have with that. If I had to do it, I could probably figure out how to do it and accept it, but I don't. So right now it's not really something that's at the top of my list. So you may be the inverse of that. Really just figure out how to drive visibility, look at how you can do that. And then you can narrow it down to things that fit your budget, fit your strengths, fit your current comfort level and go from there. I think that that's a much better approach and gets you moving faster because you can spend years just kind of worrying about, I'm not doing this or none of us are doing everything. You can't do everything. There are dozens of ways to get people to your books. Um, as for people ragging on your book or saying it sucks, or, you know, you putting something out there and people not liking it or being uncomfortable, with putting the book out there. Uh, you know, I have news. People are not going to like your book. Like that's just universal. There's no avoiding that. You may be hoping that your book is the only one to get unanimous five stars across the board. It will not be the case. So you can look at popular authors, go read their reviews and read the one star reviews. They're all really harsh. And I wouldn't worry about it. There are books that you don't like that other people like. There are books that you really like that other people don't like. And it's going to be the same with your readership, but it's not a big deal. If no one likes the book, like I've written stuff that people have reviewed harshly and said, you know, what, however they felt about it, which they're totally entitled to do. And that's cool. Like they didn't like it. It's not a big deal. I survived. I'm still here talking. Like there's nothing, it doesn't matter. Like that's, that's what you have to kind of internalize. And each time you get a harsh review, it just hammers that point home. Like you, you get more and more immune to it. The other thing is you can just kind of avoid the reviews. You don't necessarily have to read them. It's easier said than done for most authors, but it's like, you know, you don't, you don't have to read them. I think they're useful sometimes for feedback or you can use them in ads for ad copy and things of that nature. But if it's going to bother you to that extent, you just don't, don't read them. But, you know, it's part of being an author is getting that feedback. It's very public feedback. It's very direct where in real life, you don't usually have those scenarios where someone tells you that this is like terrible and the worst thing they ever read. And you know, the thing that you worked on for the past three months is garbage, but that's fine. They, if they felt that way, then it's how they felt. I would say it's better to have a book elicit some sort of emotional reaction rather than just kind of like nothing. So 
it's better to get some sort of emotional response than nothing at all. And this is a quote from Rick Rubin or paraphrased. He's a famous record producer, produced a bunch of albums for bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And he said, you know, good art is divisive. Like you can't really stick out in people's minds and have them be your favorite band or have you be their favorite artist or be their favorite band or movie or whatever without a, a bunch of people being like, I don't get it. And I hate that. So that's just part of it. And you gotta play the hand and let the chips fall where they may. And you don't have any control over that. So you just gotta let it go. Yeah. Right. It's definitely hard if you're a control freak to let go of that. Cause I'm a massive control freak. And my first negative review for what happens in New York literally said, wouldn't pay for it. And that broke me for like a week. And then the joke was on them three years later because I made it perma-free. <laughs> So, I mean, I find them funny to. at this point. Yeah. I also have a lot more objectivity because I read a bunch of the reviews for people whose ads I've run and ran, and I'm pulling stuff from the ads for those and kind of seeing where people are at and all that sort of thing. And, you know, I have the numbers for those books and I know that they've done well. And some people just hate them. Like they hate the book. And, you know, and then you have the people at the top who just love 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 the book and if you look at the distribution there there's more people who love the book and like it than hate it it's just that those one star reviews they tend to get upvoted so they appear at the top and also they just stick out but you shouldn't necessarily discount all the other things there it's just you know part of being an author and on my own stuff like i just find it amusing at this point like Occasionally something someone says is accurate and you can use that as a way to make the books better. Um, but I, I just tend to find them funny more than anything else. Like that someone really didn't like this book at all. Like, and you know, some of them are amusing. So I'd, I'd look at the positives or just not look at them and that would be my approach, but yeah, I do the it same. takes time to get there. Right. It does. Yeah. It does. Like, One of my friends actually reads all her reviews so that she can mine them for that feedback. I'm like, you've got seriously thick skin. I really admire you, but I ain't doing that. My mental health can't take it. <laughs> like, that's yeah. just me being honest. I, it's not that my um, skin hasn't got thicker, but I don't want to emotionally drain myself so that I'm like, oh, why am I bothering with this series anymore? You know? Because it can sometimes yeah. eat at you. Yeah, right. You can get you can get a little tangled up too, even if you're good at um, not getting super um, thrown off track by the negative reviews. Because sometimes you're like, okay, I'm looking for feedback, but one person will not like this, and then another person will like that and not like this. So you have to look at it kind of like if there's some sort of consistent thread, where if ten people were like, I did not like this aspect of the book. Maybe it's relevant, but you also have to scale that to the number of reviews you have because whatever you might have, if you have a thousand reviews, you might have 50 negative reviews, right? So then you have people repeating stuff that, yeah, that a bunch of people had problems with it, but as an overall percentage of the book's readers, it's like 
one percent or whatever you know so it's not actually a big deal so it can be tough to navigate through that but um you know if you're capable of doing it like then it can be a good resource certainly especially when you're starting out because that's when you're most unsure of whether things structurally work characters work narrative works if things make sense right like the little things really <laughs> they're not i don't think anybody's really trying to come after us as authors or anything like that it's just another product in the marketplace and the way i kind of see it is everyone's entitled to their opinion doesn't mean i have to listen to it or you know take it to heart or anything like that it's just part of the business so it's all good and you know something in that negative review someone might read that and be like that's exactly the type of book i like you know i like it that the main character behaves this way and that this you know person didn't like it you know so there's there's that as well it also makes the book look a little bit more real right like sometimes you see those reviews where someone has a review team and it's just all five stars and it's three under five star reviews occasionally i've worked with people who have that just without the art team and actually a negative review in that instance can really help like you may not feel like it but like that getting upvoted or something like that can actually really help just kind of give some balance to the overall proceedings so you know someone takes the time to read the book that's cool. It's really cool that you can reach people from across the world and market your books and sell them to basically anyone at this point. So, you know, I'm cool with people not liking it. You know, hopefully more people like it than not, but like part of the game. It is, yeah. I've heard of a lot of indies using the negative reviews as ad copy as well, because the, like you say, the very things that are being highlighted in the negative review are actually perfect for their target audience. I even saw one indie the other day, I think in the Wide for the Win Facebook group, had got their very first negative review printed on a mug as a reminder and a motivational tool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can use them as, you know, in marketing or something like that you could that would be a unique way to do it i think most people probably wouldn't be confident enough to do that or you know also it's it, it takes a little bit of skill i think to navigate that if you're using it as an ad just fyi for anybody out there who's just starting out with the marketing or something like that like it's it's a little bit trickier to get the tone of the ad right than if you're pulling a positive review quote just you know less yeah. you Jump probably, into some hot water. Probably better for some genres than others, like the quite acerbic ones, like some urban fantasy can be quite sharp and witty. So it might work for something like that, or maybe a crime. But if you're doing like certain sweet romances, for example, it probably isn't the right first impression you want to make. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I'm pretty, I guess, I don't know if bold is the right word with the marketing choices, but, you know, not a lot of things really, um, like I'm not tentative about trying things. So that's something that I don't think I've ever done with a negative review. Part yeah. of it's that I run a lot of ads for clients too. And, you know, that's probably a little bit harder to sell uh, to someone else there. So, um, but, you know, it's just not something that I've actually tried. Um, I tried a lot of stuff with the ads. So, yeah, I mean, if it's working for people do it but you know if anyone's sitting there like 
clenching their teeth, be like, oh my God, I have to do this with the ads, right? That's not something that you have to do. So something else you highlighted in your book that really stood out to me was you mentioned how people throw money in ads on less popular books or series rather than throwing money at the books and series that are already doing well to further increase their reach. Why do you think some people do that? I think it's probably the same kind of part of our brain that gets focused on the 1% of reviews that are negative and the 99% ignore the 99% that are positive and kind of discount those. Like we, we take a lot of the things that go well for granted. And this applies, I think, to a larger aspect of life, but just to keep it in the book marketing realm, like the, the books that do well, a lot of times it's less effort to do that. And maybe the books that don't do well, we have some sort of special connection or belief in them, or it's like this book that we wrote from our heart or whatever. And a lot of times those books are the ones that don't necessarily resonate as much because they were written for the person rather than the public, which is totally fine. There are a variety of reasons to write and by no means is making money and writing commercial fiction the only reason to do so. But a lot of times those books that don't do as well kind of fall into that vein where they're not necessarily in a specific subgenre or they take some unpopular choices with the narrative or don't incorporate some key tropes and things like that. So I think that that's part of the reason where authors might have an emotional attachment to the book. And then there's also always a tendency to focus on the negative or focus on what's not working. And it seems like that's the best way to increase your earnings where it's like, oh, I have these 20 books over here that aren't selling at all. Let me focus all my effort on those. Whereas I have this one series that's killing it. The way the 80, 20 rule works is that probably 20% of your books are going to drive 80% of the revenue. In reality, that might be that 5% of your books drive 95 or 99% of the revenue. So you want to double down there with the ad spend where it might be that hundred dollars invested over here returns $200 or drives X number of sales and page reads, whereas $100 over here drives like $10 in sales. So you're down $90. And it seems like you can work on that over here and grind through it. Sometimes you can make it better, but something that doesn't work from the start usually never works. That's almost always the case. And then something that works marginally well, like you can kind of grow that into something, but the things that really work well tend to work well when they launched or you know after you started learning a bit about marketing maybe at the beginning of the launch you didn't know anything and then as your career evolved over the next six months year like then things picked up as you learned new marketing techniques and you applied them and those best practices to the book and then it started rolling but once you have kind of like the baseline skills usually when you launch a book and when the series comes out tends to be kind of a good indicator of how its future prospects are going to fare. So I wouldn't take too much to the bank there if you're just starting out where you launched a book and you're like, oh, it's done forever. Like you probably marketing wise have a lot of skills to acquire, which is good. You know, you can learn those and then revisit it. But once you kind of apply those best practices and apply them to the back catalog, you know, 
and something's still not working, pushing a boulder uphill and then having it fall on you every day is not a pleasant experience and not really recommended. So I'd really focus on the things that are working because the, the other thing is that you inadvertently kill both things. So you have your golden goose over here and then whatever you have these things that are a bunch of rocks that you're trying to turn into a goose or something and it's not working. But meanwhile, you're not feeding the goose. So it ties and that's not good. And then it's hard to get that momentum back, right? Momentum's a precious thing, both in your own productivity and in your career. And it's not impossible to get it back by any means after a layoff or something happens where you can't publish for a while, but you don't want to do that through either negligence or on purpose where you're not giving your best series the marketing attention that they deserve. Yeah, that makes sense. So we've got another listener question and Tim wants to know what the biggest book marketing myth is. Probably that you're going to release one book and have it made. I have to say that that's the main idea that people have or that more so than that, even when you progress further in your, your career, that one book can make your career. Certainly if you write the Da Vinci Code or if you write a series like Harry Potter or whatever, or some of these books that are familiar to us precisely because they're such massive outliers, then that can happen. But again, just to go back to that example, if your book makes a million dollars and then you don't release anything else or everything else is a bust or you don't develop any marketing skills or anything like that, and you can't market the next books in the series well or things like that, then it's going to drift off and you're left with what seems like a huge payout, but over the course of your career, then it's actually not that much money. So it's a long-term game. Everyone's thinking three months ahead, six months ahead, how can I make this release the best ever and all this. And it's not that launching or a marketing campaign or ads aren't important, but they're all just little mile markers and stops along the way. It's not the end of the road. So I would say that the biggest myth is just that you can make it with one book and that there is some sort of endpoint where it's like, all right, now I'm comfortable and I can stop. You just keep walking. Like that's really all you can do. And if you like walking, then it's good. If you're not a fan of that, again, like then probably shouldn't make writing your core career because it's not going to be fulfilling. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I like that it's the journey and there's always something else to learn, something else to do, something to experiment with. But I know that can be quite intimidating for some people. It can be overwhelming if you think about it, right? If you think about the scope. But uh, I think the main mistake I made is when I was like 25 or 26 writing and I was thinking, it's like, okay, how is this book going to make me half a million dollars or something? Like that's a waste of time. Right. Like it's more like, how does this book slot into a career that can actually make me whatever X number of dollars or more so than the dollars? How can I spend my days in a fulfilling fashion and enjoy the actual day to day? If you're making a million dollars a year writing and you don't like writing and grinding through the books and the marketing, then that was a bad decision, regardless of the outward appearance of success, right? So you can end up in a place where you're very successful by other people's standards and other authors are jealous of you, but 
you don't actually like where you wound up. So that's important. But yeah, it's definitely kind of like overwhelming if you stop to think about it, especially at the beginning. But it also relieves the expectations where it's like, well, if this book sucks, doesn't matter. If it sucks, then no one's going to buy it and no one's going to read it and you can just move on, right? You can just keep going and then it's forgotten. And that's, that's a good thing, good or bad, right? You can't dwell on either. Yeah, I've seen some authors recently have actually unpublished earlier series that they no longer like and that didn't sell that well. And from a technical standpoint, um, they weren't that great. And because they're like second or third or whatever series had picked up, they decided to just unpublish that first series because they were too mortified to let anyone else read it. I have some books that I unpublished. They don't really fit my brand anymore and they're not really making any money. So I unpublished them. Uh, you know, and not because I'm necessarily ashamed of them or anything like that. Everything's just another brick in your publishing house or however you kind of want to look at it metaphorically. And you can't get to the house without building the foundation. And like a lot of that is just really spending time in the mud and doing things that are where you're grinding away and working at stuff that where you feel like you should be further along either with the marketing or the craft, you know, it's like, I read this in a book, I read whatever Harry Potter or the hunger games or something. And it's like, I know where this can go, but then you read your own stuff and you're like, this is not at the same level. Right. So we all have that kind of experience, but you know, you can't get to, the next level without going down the path. Like there's no teleportation. I think that that's what a lot of us are looking for, where we can skip the frustration and also skip the interim skill building. Ads are a good example. If you want to get good at ads, it's just in between that is this massive stretch of just frustration and ideas where you're like, oh, this is it, you know, and you, where you think you have it figured out. And then the ad platforms are like, nope. You, you thought you, you did, but we were fooling you and we got you. And then like, it's just that over and over again, where you're just learning more and more and more and more. And either you enjoy that or you don't. And I think that's probably what dictates most of where people end up, whether you can focus more on things that you enjoy and can get through that frustration where it's actually worthwhile for you to do so. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. The I've definitely seen some people try and skip those kind of foundational steps and then they're like, why isn't this working? And you try and explain it to them, but they just don't want to hear it because they think they're in it for the long term, but actually they're trying to get the quick win out of something that is a very, very long term career and it just doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, guilty as charged. I think we all have things where you do that and, you know, everything's kind of set up where it's do this in 30 days or write this book in 30 days or whatever marketing challenge 30 days. And it's not that those things can't be useful, but it's just, that's not the end point right after on day 31, you still have to show up and write or market or whatever. So it's just this continuous process. And that's something that since I have the numbers for people who are very successful and have worked with a number of people who are very successful, I can see that there's no, one book that's going to make it if the book hits the top 100 awesome maybe it hangs out there for a bit but three months from now 
said number 2000 or number 3000 or 4000 and you got to come up with a new idea for a new book a new marketing campaign and all that so everything just fades and then you got to bring it the next day and that's all that you can really do it is it's all about building that momentum and the more you do it the easier it gets as well it's when you stop or when you slow down i i find definitely that i find it harder then to keep going and to do stuff like the last week or so i've been trying to get up first thing in the morning and then get some writing done literally before i do anything else and i'm today i had i wrote a thousand more words than i did every other day this week and three thousand more words than i did yesterday you know because yesterday because i didn't do it first thing in the morning i completely lost the momentum and the ability to do it so it does help once you break that fear or whatever that barrier is in front of you to just go yeah habits are really powerful in regards to productivity and keeping momentum what's interesting about habits is if you have something that's established for like the week after that you really want to do it and then it starts to fade so i always find this with say working out or something where you can't work out or you're taking a rest or something like the first couple days you want to do it and then it starts fading like that motivation and momentum so when you find that and it's it's a skill being able to kind of be self-aware enough to recognize when that's happening because it's not something that at the beginning you're usually cognizant of and then you're like wait where did all my momentum go right but once you kind of recognize that that happens then you can catch it and if you catch it in the middle of the week or at the end of the week then it's a lot easier than if you do it a month later but if you do lose that momentum then you know you just start a little bit further back up the road and a good analogy is with working out you know if you could do a certain number of push-ups or whatever if you could do 20 in a row at your peak level of fitness or something if you don't work out for a while then you have to kind of scale that back you don't just go in and do 20 again that's a good way to discourage yourself or injure yourself and it's the same thing with writing where maybe you can write 3,000 words a day or you did that continually but it's been a long layoff then you have to reduce that that's something that i really found getting back to writing this book it was just such a struggle to do even like four or five hundred words or like the progress that i was making was not at the level that i was expecting because in the past i've written a lot more words per day and had no issue doing it but you know it's just something where you're getting back in the gym and you have to build yourself back up to where you are. And then by the end I was fine, but it took about 10 days to really get to that level where I could do 3000 or 4,000 in a day. And that really stalled me out for a while because I kept trying to jump to that 4,000 point at the beginning. So that's something that's really important if you're coming back from a layoff, which at some point we all, experience that like you want to reduce the workload and reduce the volume a little bit to kind of meet yourself where you are otherwise you can spin your wheels for a while i would recommend anyone out there to keep some records so that you know so i mean i spent all this time over the past three years just trying to jump right into it and i kept doing it even though i i knew that that wasn't the right approach but you have these expectations and expectations kill you everywhere whether it's productivity or marketing you know where you're expecting to be at a certain level or you have this idea of who you are at this point in time and then 
reality comes up and says it's not the case right now, but it can be relatively fast. Like it only took me 10 days to get back there. So if I had just really started small and just kind of accepted where I was, then wouldn't have had that interim saga, but it's all, it's all part of the journey. So I'm not upset about it, but certainly going forward, I would say that that is unlikely to happen again, because I also know from experience that that didn't take that long. And I also know more what to expect where those, those first few days were horrible in terms of the overall output and just like where the narrative was going and how I was feeling about it. Like it just wasn't, it wasn't going well at all or flowing smoothly. So when you have that expectation, then that's really jarring and then you stop, but that's just part of kind of getting back into things like and getting your endurance up or your cardio up or whatever in terms of fitness, like you run a mile and then you want to throw up, but then you kind of get to the next mile marker the next day and the next day. Yeah. And it's one of those things as well. Like the stronger your muscles were before you stopped, the easier it is to get back into it. Cause mm -hmm. I've read something ages ago about how people who exercise all the time when they stop because of illness or injury or whatever, then their muscles decline at a slower rate than people who are generally quite unhealthy or don't exercise as much. And writing is exactly the same kind of thing. Yeah. There's a muscle memory to it. Certainly. Um, so yeah, just where people get in trouble is that they let their ego get in the way and I'm no different. It's a very human thing where you say, okay, I can lift this much in the gym, whatever you could bench 200, 225 or whatever, and you haven't done it in a while. And then you go in there and you drop the bar on your neck or whatever, and then you injure yourself. Right. So uh, that's never happened to me. I've, I've never bench pressed, but sure, sure. <laughs> certainly <laughs> that's not personal experience, but you know, people get in trouble or they like tear their rotator cuff or they do, you know, it, it results in injury where you set yourself back way further. And the same thing happens with writing or productivity where you do have that muscle memory and you know where you were, but you just have to scale things back. And I think the reason that exercise is such an apt metaphors because no one would go in and expect in the gym if you've never trained before to be able to lift like 500 pounds like deadlift they would say that would be impossible but people try to do that all the time with the productivity where it's like oh, i'm gonna write 10,000 words today it's like okay have you ever done that before have you know do you have the skills to lay that out and really the capacity to do that and that's really difficult to do is, is that equivalent. I think where we deceive ourselves with the productivity is that you can do that for like a day or two days sometimes where you jump way beyond your current skill level and capacity, but it's not actually real. Like the real productivity is what you can do consistently and show up over time and what your sustained capacity is without burning out or being super stressed. And that's a lot different than what you can do in theory or you know for a very short period of time so that's important and i like to think things in terms of physical stuff because sometimes with writing it's very easy to get in your head and stay in that mental space but there's no real lying to yourself when it comes to something like physical 
things like either you can do a push up or you can't right and it's like either you're at a position where you can do x number of words or you can't but the thing is you can build up to it it's not today isn't the final verdict on where your career is and where your productivity is you can build it really fast it's just you have to start small and then scale up that intensity over time and it scales pretty quickly a lot of the time even if it takes a year if your career is 40 years that's two and a half percent of the overall time it's nothing in the grand scheme of things so it's worthwhile to build these skills and build them over time and i have to constantly remind myself of this because i have dumb ideas all the time like i'm going to do all you know whatever i'm going to do these 18 things today like no i'm not it's not going to happen right but if i try to embark down that route then i waste that day and probably three more days putting up zeros and that's not a good use of time so you know it's a constant battle right it is yeah <laughs> it's never it it's is. never won it's just you know you sometimes you win and sometimes you we'll call it a tie <laughs> right sometimes you're yeah like, and it's that making that regular commitment to doing it rather than doing it in those short sharp maybe long um bursts that is going to build your skill much more because if you're writing ten thousand words a day once in a blue moon you're not going to grow as much as if you're writing just a couple of thousand every day on a regular basis yeah you can do it either way maybe you're more of a writer who does it for a week or two and finishes the book that's more what i do and then they have some time off and take some time to go do something else or you might be really consistent where you do like 2000 a day. I think that that is what people consider the ideal, but it's not necessarily any better than the burst approach, which I find just makes the narrative more cohesive. It gives it a nice flow when I write that way. And that's just personal style and personal strengths there. Like that's not necessarily going to be the appropriate method for other people but don't necessarily be married to this idea that you have to do it consistently every day now there are certainly things in your life that need to be habitual right that doesn't work for working out you can't say hey i'm going to work out for these two weeks and then i'm going to be good for the next four months and then i'm going to work out for two weeks but with writing you can you have this asset that you bank and doesn't matter if that book took you two weeks or if you wrote it over seven weeks consistently or however long it took you the end product is the same and you can sell it in the same fashion so that makes it different well, i would approach that however you work best but what i've found just through experimentation is that the books that i feel are the best in my catalog are those that are written relatively quickly where I can get in that groove and the narrative just lines up and everything is really consistent from not just like a plotting perspective, but also just from a characterization perspective. And that's been good to know. Just requires experimentation. You got to see what works. Um, but also you can look back at, say, how you approached your schoolwork. That gives you a really good indication of how you're going to approach your writing productivity. I was always someone who was doing the paper or studying for the test or doing whatever the night before, like never ever doing anything beforehand just wasn't happening. So that translates over here where 
I set some sort of deadline and then it's like a mad race to the finish and it works um, as long as you give yourself enough time to ramp up. Like if you have a big layoff before that and then you only give yourself five days to do the book, which is kind of what I kept doing. I didn't have enough time to get through that period where I was only writing three, 400 words a day. You know, if I was writing a book a month or something, then I probably wouldn't need that ramp up period. Like I could jump back in and do 5,000 or whatever, 4,000 really quickly. So just give yourself some buffer time if you've had a layoff there, but like both of those can be really uh, powerful approaches. Uh, I find with the consistency approach, I just lose the thread of the narrative. Like I don't remember what happened. If I write a thousand words a day over a month or something like by the middle of the month, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I, I do not remember at all what the main character was doing. Obviously you can read the book there, but like that's, that's the problem that I start to run into a little bit and that may change maybe when I'm 40 or whatever, 50, like then your brain, like it might work differently and the approach might work differently. So you want to be flexible there. Yeah. I find every book I write is a slightly different approach because what's going on in my life is always different. Like COVID changed my writing process and going full time changed my writing process and changing genres changed my writing process. And I've just learned to be adaptable. I always have my bullet pointed plans and they require varying amounts of detail depending on the genre and the characters and what I'm doing. Like my the third book in my fantasy series that I'm writing at the moment, I didn't have a huge amount of detail when I initially planned it. And I went back in and kind of filled in some of the how stuff happens so that then I can just write a lot faster and I don't need to worry about kind of fixing things and things not making sense. And there's one book, the one scene in book two, which I'm sending to beta readers next week. And I'm like, I don't know how to fix this because I didn't think about how to fix it before I wrote it. So I currently think it's a massive pile of shit. And so I'm like, how can I fix it? How can I fix it before Monday? And I'm going to have to like just harass my uh, podcast co-host Ellie and be like, Ellie, can we talk writing? Please help me. Because <laughs> she's always really good at fixing things and making me calm. But we have all these different things in place that can help us with our writing when we are having those moments, right? Yeah, yeah. You want to have like a toolbox of things and you want to just test things. Very rarely is some sort of technique going to be universal. There's always this kind of like standoffish, I guess, debate between pantsing and plotting and everything productivity related or writing related or anything in the world, right? You have people who say you have to do it this way or that way. Just try them. I, I think, I don't even know what I would term how I do this. Like it's almost the way I used to write papers was I would write this draft that was somewhere between an outline and like an actual paper and it wasn't bulleted out, but it wasn't like I could turn it in and then I would just go in and expanded and once i had that skeleton then i could basically write that and make it a lot better and then the final would be nowhere near what the original was and it's kind of how i approach writing now with the newsletter that's really exactly the approach that i use and then with the books to an extent it is but i've had to modify that because it's just from a mindset perspective it's a little bit soul crushing to write like 
30,000 words and then be like, we're going to get rid of them all because they don't make sense. So like I've had to revise that a little bit. So the approach that I settled on is something that is kind of adapted from something that Dean Wesley Smith talks about on his blog that he talks about cycling, which is you write the words for the day and then the next day you go back and you read what you wrote and um, he's not a fan of editing. I have to revise some stuff and things like that because I just tend to write fast and sometimes things don't line up and things like that. So I, I'll revise it and kind of get the word choices that I like in there. And then I know where I'm at in the narrative. That's my big thing where a lot of times I'm so focused on writing that I don't really internalize necessarily where the plot is. So if I just start writing the next day without reading what I wrote, then sometimes it doesn't line up. So once I do that, then I know that it's solid and ready to go. And also I have a starting point where I can start writing. So that was really effective for the last book that I wrote. The other thing you want to do is have a document on your computer that where you just write down what happened in the chapter and like, you know, whatever this is, this is what the character has in their possession at this point. Like if it's some sort of MacGuffin that needs to show up later on, all that stuff. So that, that helps as well. And that's, that's basically how I wrote this last book, just kind of reading that. And that was um, something that I really didn't do before, but it solved that problem where, especially if you have a job or if you have kids or if you have anything that requires some element of your attention where you can't give the book the hundred percent of your focus and memory bank, then it's easy for that to let those plot points and things like that to kind of fade. And that's what I was having trouble with because the past three years I've done a lot more client work and I just have more obligations there and things vying for my attention. So that was really effective and worth trying. You know, some people don't like doing that, but for me, it solved that kind of problem where I, could keep things fresh in my mind. And also I wasn't just like writing all these words and then be like, well, I'll fix it later. Cause that kind of like bare bones outlining technique, it just becomes this tangle at 30, 40,000 words that I found that I can't crunch it down into what I need it to be. No, like just, as I said before, everything's about iteration. You're just working on it over time and coming up with a process that works for you. Yeah, I um, the thought of going back over what I've just written the next day is literally my idea of hell because I'd just delete the lot because I would just be too like close to it. I'm like, that's crap, that's crap. And I would just like, I'm just too harsh with myself when I'm when it's fresh words. I'd rather separate out the editing time and I usually stick stuff in a drawer, like a metaphorical drawer, for like a month before I go back through it. And then I kind of can have my editor hat on and view it a lot more clearly. And I'm a little bit of a slower editor than I am a planner or a writer, but you know, it's finding systems that work for you. That's what it's all about. And like you say, like iterating on things as you change and grow both as a writer and as a person. Yeah, it's interesting to think like how much of it is just natural preference and how much of it is trained. Um, and I think a lot of the things that are trained are just by accident. It's just kind of like something that I always did with the editing in school. Like I was just always editing really fast and editing was a necessity because of the way that I wrote. So it's something where 
I can really step back and be like, okay, this word, not right. This exchange sucks, needs to be this way, all that sort of thing. And like, I can just kind of get that objectivity. I'd say where the objectivity is a little bit more lacking is seeing where the book kind of comes together and whether it all is cohesive or not. That's something that I can only really tell once the book is published and if I reread it maybe like a month or two later, because the way I figured out that this writing in a condensed period of time was producing better work as I reread a book that I'd written in five or six days about two or three years later, because I was had to reread it to write the sequel, which of course I haven't written yet. So, but I got to reread it and learn something else. So there's always a positive, even if it's not what you anticipated, but I reread it. And I was like, I thought it was terrible when I wrote, it. I was like, this is, this is awful. And I reread it and I was like, this is probably the best book that I've read, written. Like, like it's just boom, straight shot. And you also learn things about your own strengths as well. Like I was doing a lot of stuff when I had more time where the narrative would just expand into this, like, you know, you have those FBI boards and shows where you have all the string going all over the place. And it's like, this person's, that's like kind of what it was like. And I was like, I didn't have time to do that. It just saved me from some of my worst tendencies by having that deadline. It's like, nope, can't have this plot point. Can't have this one. Can't have this one. Can't have this subplot. Like just got to keep going. And it just made the entire thing really consistent and cohesive um, in a way that surprised me. So, you know, you, you learn things over time and it's always nice when you read something and it obviously comes together. That's always satisfying, especially when you're convinced that it was terrible. That's a nice surprise. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's, sometimes it is terrible. That's all right. So to wrap things up, cause we've gone slightly over what we found. Um, what's one book that has changed your life? One book. Just one. Although Sasha right. Black did cheat and have two, so. Right, yeah, I was about to name a bunch. Uh, so, yeah, it's, there's, there's a bunch of good ones. So before I was an author, like I, I used to trade stocks and things like that. So I read a lot of books about finance and things like that. I have a finance degree as well as an English degree. So there's a lot of stuff there that's applicable to the book market because there's a lot of business things that are related and also just the volatility of trading things like stocks or, you know, like crypto now, which is very popular is very similar to the ups and downs that you experience as an author. So with that long winded preamble out of the way, one of my favorite books is What I Learned Losing a Million Dollars. I believe that that's the title. And as the name would suggest, it is about a trader who lost a million dollars trading. I can't remember if it was futures or options or something like that, but it's one of these highly leveraged uh, financial instruments. And it just goes through the thought processes that led to that failure and it's very similar to failure in any industry where you you invest too much money into a certain in this case commodity but in our case it could be a book or a marketing campaign where 
you're really hoping that this is going to be the one that pays off or you just kind of get a little bit greedy or you stop focusing on the right things and get distracted and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a really good book and most books only focus on success. Success in life is not really the norm. I think something like 95% of species that have ever lived on planet earth are now extinct. So don't take that percentage as gospel, but it's a lot, you know, like that life is harsh in that way. And that applies to business and the book market as well. Readers have a lot of choice. Sometimes your books miss the mark. Sometimes they hit them. Hopefully over time, as you gain more experience, you can have more hits than misses or your hits, the magnitude of them and the amount that they make, make up for whatever misses the mark, but you're never going to hit 100%. And it's as much about being able to traverse failure and avoid catastrophic failure. That's really what the book is about because you don't want these scenarios where you just go bust. You need to stay in the game and maybe there are some years where you don't make as much, but if you keep your expenses low, if you keep learning and you kind of pick your shots and try to funnel your marketing money toward the books that are doing the best stuff that we've talked about, keep writing, then you have a shot at making it and surviving long-term, which is the name of any game. So uh, it's worth checking out if you're an author because it's definitely applicable to what we do and it's an easy read. It's not super long. So I would yeah, say sounds that interesting. Sounds my recommendation. <laughs> Very nice. I shall add a link to the show notes to that book if anyone wants to check it out. So where can our listeners go to find out more about you and what you do? You can go to Amazon or other book retailers and check out the ultimate guide to book marketing. If you want kind of everything in one place, it's comprehensive volume to, as the name would suggest, book marketing. So if that's something that you're looking to expand your skill set in, I'd check that out. And if you want to learn more about me or check out my site, uh, go to Nicholas Eric, that's Eric with a K.com. And you can sign up for my weekly marketing newsletter. So I talk about marketing occasionally, productivity, mindset type of stuff. And it's weekly-ish, but as we already talked about, you know, consistency is sometimes all over the place. So you might get three or four newsletters on three or four days and then nothing for a little while, but that's kind of how it goes. So people have found that very valuable. You can check that out if you want, and that's free. Yeah, it's a great newsletter. My uh, friend referred me to your newsletter. I can't remember when now. feels like forever ago, but that's because time's not a concept in COVID. And I, it's just so insightful. And reading The Ultimate Guide to Book Marketing, I think I've like highlighted half the book. <laughs> so when I go back through all my notes and be like, oh, okay. <laughs> Which bit's relevant again? Because there's just so much good stuff in there. And it's such a comprehensive guide walking you through all the different strategies and yeah it's so in-depth i definitely recommend checking it out thank you for that kind review and recommendation i appreciate it thank you for joining us it's been really great to chat so yeah yeah, yeah. 
Thanks for having me on. Had a great time. And yeah, if anyone buys the book or joins the newsletter, I hope that's helpful for you or at the very least that this conversation was helpful. So yeah, I hope so. Did you find this episode enlightening? Don't forget to hit that shiny, shiny subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Or if you're watching on YouTube, give us a subscribe and hit the like button there too. It really helps other writers find our videos and helps us to know what kind of content you want more of. And don't forget, you can support the Writer's Mindset over on Patreon for less than your favourite coffee a month. Join our growing gang of writers to get early access to episodes, bonus content and writing workshops. And you get to listen to these interviews like a month in advance. So you can check out interviews with Matty Dalrymple and Dictionary and I've forgotten who else is in the schedule, but we've got some real great ones coming up about things like podcasting, branding, all the things you need to succeed as an indie author. Visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset to find out more. Keep writing.